Chapter Four of A Texas Matchmaker by Andy Adams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Christmas. The branding on the home range was an easy matter. The cattle were compelled to water from the oasis, so that their range was never over five or six miles from the river. There was no occasion even to take out the wagon, though we made a one-night camp at the mouth of the Gonzo, and another about midway between the home ranch and Shepherd's Ferry, pack mules serving instead of the wagon. On the home range, in gathering the brand, we never disturbed the mixed cattle, cutting out only the cows and calves. On the roundup below the Gonso, we had over 3,000 cattle in one rodeo, finding less than 500 calves belonging to Las Palomas, the bulk on this particular occasion being steer cattle. There had been little demand for steers for several seasons, and they had accumulated until many of them were fine beeves, five and six years old. When the branding proper was concluded, our tally showed nearly 5,100 calves branded that season, indicating about 20,000 cattle in the Las Palomas brand. After a week's rest with fresh horses, we re-rode the home range in squads of two and branded any calves we found with a running iron. This added nearly a hundred more to our original number. On an open range like ours, it was not expected that everything would be branded, but on quitting, it is safe to say, we had missed less than one percent of our calf crop. The cattle finished, we turned our attention to the branding of the horse stock. The Christmas season was approaching, and we wanted to get the work well in hand for the usual holiday festivities. There were some fifty manadas of mares belonging to Las Palomas, about one-fourth of which were used for the rearing of mules, the others growing our saddle horses for ranch use. These brands numbered twenty to twenty-five brood mares each, and ranged mostly within twenty miles of the home ranch. They were never disturbed except the brand the colts, market surplus stock, or cut out the mature geldings to be broken for saddle use. Each manada had its own range, never trespassing on the other. But when they were brought together in the corral, there was many a battle royal among the stallions. I was anxious to get the work over in good season, for I intended to ask for two weeks' leave of absence. My parents lived near Cibolo Ford on the San Antonio River and I made it a rule to spend Christmas with my own people. This year in particular I had a double motive in going home, for the mouth of the San Miguel and the McLeod Ranch lay directly on my route. I had figured matters down to a fraction. I would have a good excuse for staying one night and going and another returning, and it would be my fault if I did not reach the ranch at an hour when an invitation to remain overnight would be simply imperative under the canons of Texas hospitality. I had done enough hard work since the dance at Shepherd's to drive every thought of Esther McLeod out of my mind, if that were possible. But as the time drew nearer, her invitation to call was ever uppermost in my thoughts. So when the last of the horse stock was branded, and the work was drawing to a close, as we sat around the fireplace one night, and the question came up where each of us was expected to spend Christmas, I broached my plan. The master and mistress were expected 
at the Booth Ranch on the Frio. Nearly all the boys who had homes within two or three days' ride hoped to improve the chance to make a short visit to their people. When, among the others, I also made my application for leave of absence. Uncle Lance turned in his chair with apparent surprise. What's that? You want to go home? Well, now, that's a new one on me. Why, Tom, I never knew you had any folks. I got the idea somehow that you was one on a horse race. Here I had everything figured out to send you down to Santa Maria with Enrique, but I reckon with the ice broken, you'll have to swim out or drown. Where do your folks live? I explained that they lived on the San Antonio River, northeast, about 150 miles. At this I saw my employer's face brighten. Yes, yes, I see, he said musingly. That will carry you past the widow McLeod's. You can go, son, and good luck to you. I timed my departure from Las Palomas, allowing three days for the trip, so as to reach home on Christmas Eve. By making a slight deviation, there was a country store which I could pass on the last day where I expected to buy some presents for my mother and sisters. But I was in a pickle as to what to give Esther, and consulting Miss Jean, I found that the motherly elderly sister had everything thought out in advance. There was an old Mexican woman, a pure Aztec Indian, at a ranchita belonging to Las Palomas, who was an expert in Mexican-drawn work. The mistress of the home ranch had been a good patron of this old woman, and the next morning we drove over to the ranchita, where I secured a half a dozen ladies' handkerchiefs, inexpensive but very rare. I owned a private horse, which had run idle all summer, and naturally expected to ride him on this trip, but Uncle Lance evidently wanted me to make a good impression on the widow McLeod, and brushed my plans aside by asking me as a favor to ride a certain black horse belonging to his private string. Quirk, he said, the evening before my departure, I wish you would ride Wolf, that black six-year-old in my mount. When that rascal of an Enrique saddle broke him for me, he always mounted him with a free head and on the move, and now when I use him, he's always on the fidget. So you just ride him over to San Antonio and back and see if you can't cure him of that restlessness. It may be my years, but I just despise a horse that's always dancing a jig when I want to mount him. Glenn Gallup's people lived in Victoria County, about as far from Las Palomas as mine, and the next morning we set out down the river. Our course together only led a short distance, but we jogged along until noon, when we rested an hour and parted. Glenn, going on down the river for Oakville, while I turned almost due north across country for the mouth of the San Miguel. The black carried me that afternoon as though the saddle were empty. I was constrained to hold him in, in view of the long journey before us, so as not to reach the McLeod Ranch too early. Whenever we struck cattle on our course, I rode through them to pass away the time, and just about sunset I cantered up to the McLeod Ranch with a dash. I did not know a soul on the place, but put on a bold front and asked for Miss Esther. On catching sight of me, she gave a little start, blushed modestly, and greeted me cordially. Texas hospitality of an early day is too well known to need comment. 
I was at once introduced to the McLeod household. It was rather a pretentious ranch, somewhat dilapidated in appearance. Appearances are as deceitful on a cattle ranch as in the cut of a man's coat. Tony Hunter, a son-in-law of the widow, was foreman on the ranch, and during the course of the evening in the discussion of cattle matters, I innocently drew out the fact that their branded calf crop of that season amounted to nearly 3,000 calves. When a similar question was asked me, I reluctantly admitted that the Las Palomas crop was quite a disappointment this year, only branding 6,500 calves, but that our mule and horse colts ran nearly a thousand head without equals in the Nueces Valley. I knew there was no one there who could dispute my figures, though Mrs. McLeod expressed surprise at them. You do not say, said my hostess, looking directly at me over her spectacles, that Las Palomas branded that many calves this year. Why, during my good man's life, we always branded more calves than did Mr. Lovelace. But then my husband would join the army, and I had to depend on the greasers to do my work. And our key grew up mavericks. I said nothing in reply, knowing it to be quite natural for a woman or inexperienced person to feel always the prey of the fortunate and far-seeing. The next morning before leaving, I managed to have a nice private talk with Miss Esther, and thought I read my title clear, when she surprised me with the information that her mother contemplated sending her off to San Antonio to a private school for young ladies. Her two elder sisters had married against her mother's wishes, it seemed, and Mrs. McLeod was determined to give her youngest daughter an education and fit her for something better than being the wife of a common cow hand. This was the inference from the conversation which passed between us at the gate. But when Esther thanked me for the Christmas remembrance I had brought her, I felt that I would take a chance on her, win or lose. Assuring her that I would make it a point to call on my return, I gave the black a free rein and galloped out of sight. I reached home late on Christmas Eve. My two elder brothers also followed cattle work and had arrived the day before, and the Quirk family were once more united for the first time in two years. Within an hour of my arrival, I learned from my brothers that there was to be a dance that night at a settlement about fifteen miles up the river. They were going, and it required no urging on their part to ensure the presence of the Quirk's three boys. Supper over, a fresh horse was furnished me, and we set out for the dance, covering the distance in less than two hours. I knew everyone in the settlement, and got a cordial welcome. I played the fiddle, danced with my former sweethearts, and, ere the sun rose in the morning, rode home in time for breakfast. During that night's revelry, I contrasted my former girlfriends on the San Antonio with another maiden, a slip of the old Scotch stock, transplanted and nurtured in the sunshine and soil of the San Miguel. The comparison stood all tests applied, and in my secret heart I knew who held the whip-hand over the passions within me. As I expected to return to Las Palomas for the new year, my time was limited to four days' visit at home. But a great deal can be said in four days, and at the end I was ready to saddle my black, bid my adieus, and ride for the southwest. During my visit, 
I was careful not to betray that I had even a passing thought of a sweetheart. And what parents would suspect that a rollicking, carefree young fellow of twenty could have any serious intentions towards a girl. With brothers too indifferent and sisters too young, the secret was my own. Though Wolf, my mount, as he put mile after mile behind us, seemed conscious that his mission to reach the San Miguel without loss of time was more than ordinary moment, and a better horse never carried night in the days of chivalry. On reaching the McLeod Ranch during the afternoon of the second day, I found Esther expectant, but the welcome of her mother was of a frigid order. Having a Scotch mother myself, I knew something of arbitrary natures, and met Mrs. McLeod's coolness with a fund of talk and stories, yet I could see all too plainly that she was determinedly on the defensive. I had my favorite fiddle with me, which I was taking back to Las Palomas, and during the evening I played all the old Scotch ballads I knew and love songs of the Highlands, hoping to soften her from the decided stand she had taken against me and my intentions. But her heritage of obstinacy was large, and her opposition strong, as several well-directed thrusts which reached me in vulnerable places made me aware. But I smiled as if they were flattering compliments. Several times I mentally framed replies only to smother them, for I was a stranger within her gates, and if she saw fit to offend a guest, she was still within her rights. But the next morning, as I tarried beyond the reasonable hour for my departure, her wrath broke out in a torrent. "'If you do not know the way home, Mr. Quirk, I'll show it to you,' she said, as she joined Esther and me at the hitch-rack, where we had been loitering for an hour. "'And I do not care much where you're going. So you get out of my sight and stay out of it. I thought you were a civil stranger when you bided with us last week, but now I ken you are something more, riding your fine horses and making presents to me lassie. That's the good that comes from letting her to go to every dance at Shepherd's Ferry. Go back the house to your work, you jade, and let me attend to this fine gentleman. No, sir. Gin your only business somewhere else. You'd better be riding to it, for you are not wanted here, you can. Why, Mrs. McLeod, I broke in politely, you hardly know anything about me. No, and I don't not wish to. You are from Las Palomas, and that's all enough for me. I ken old Lance Lovelace, and those that bid with him. Small wonder he brands so many calves, and sells more key than other ranchmen in the country. Aye, man, I ken him well. I saw that I had a tartar to deal with, but if I could switch her invective on some one absent, it would assist me in controlling myself. So I said to the old lady, Why, I've known Mr. Lovelace now almost a year, and over on the oasis he is well-liked and considered a cowman whose word is as good as gold. What have you got against him? Oh, mush, my young friend. I knew him before you were born. I'm sorry to say that while McGoodman was alive, he was a frequent visitor at our place. But we didn't see him only near. He always keeps away from here and camps with his wagons when he's over on the San Miguel to gather cattle. He was no content merely with what 
McKee drifted down on the Nueces, but worked the big outfit the year around, even coming over on the Frio and San Miguel Maverick hunting. That's why he brands twice the calves that anybody else does, and owns forty miles front land on both sides of the river. You see, I ken him well. Well, isn't that the way most cowmen got their start? I innocently inquired, well knowing it was. And do you blame him for running his brand on the unowned cattle that roam the range? I expect if Mr. Lovelace was my father instead of my employer, you wouldn't be talking in the same key. And with that, I led my horse out to mount. You think a great deal of yourself because you're from Las Palomas. Away, no vaquero of old Lance Lovelace can come sparkin' with me lass. I've heard old Lovelace matchmaking. I'm told he makes matches and then laughs at the silly guonks. I've two worthless son-in-laws that nope are here and neither a stage driver. And they're capital husbands for Donna McLee's lassies, are they? No. And before I let Esther marry the first scamp, that come simpering round here, I'll put her in a convent and make a nun of the baron. I gave the other lassies their way, and look at the reward. I tell you, I'm going to bar the door on the last one, and the man that marries her will be worthy of her. He will not be a vaccaro from Las Palomas either. I had mounted my horse to start, well knowing it was useless to argue with an angry woman. Esther had obediently retreated to the safety of the house, aware that her mother had a tongue and evidently willing to be spared its invective in my presence. My horse was fidgeting about, impatient to be off, but I gave him the rowel and rode up to the gate, determined, if possible, to pour oil on the troubled waters. Mrs. McLeod, said I, in humble tones, possibly, you take the correct view of this matter. Miss Esther and I have only been acquainted a few months, and will soon forget each other. Please take me in the house and let me tell her good-bye. No, sir, do not set a foot inside this gate. I hope you know you are not wanted here. There's your road, the one leading south, and you'd better be going, I'm thinking. I held in the black and rode off in a walk. This was the first clean knockout I had ever met. Heretofore, I had been egotistical enough to hold my head rather high, but this morning it drooped. Wolf seemed to notice it, and after a first mile, dropped into an easy volunteer walk. I never noticed the passing of time until we reached the river, and the black stopped to drink. Here I unsaddled for several hours, then went on again in no cheerful mood. Before I came within sight of Las Palomas near evening, my horse turned his head and nickered, and in a few minutes Uncle Lance and June DeWeese galloped up and overtook me. I had figured out several very plausible versions of my adventure, but this sudden meeting threw me off my guard, and Lance Lovelace was a hard man to tell an undetected, white-faced lie. I put on a bold front, but his salutation penetrated it at a glance. What's the matter, Tom? Any of your folks dead? No. Sick? No. Girl gone back on you? I don't think. It's the old woman, then. How do you know? Because I know that old dame. I used to go over there occasionally when old man Donald was living. But the old lady, excuse me, 
I ought to have posted you, Tom, but I don't suppose it would have done any good. Brought your fiddle with you, I see. That's good. I expect the old lady read my title clear to you. My brain must have been under a haze, for I repeated every charge she had made against him, not even sparing the accusation that he had remained out of the army and added to his brand by mavericking cattle. Did she say that? inquired Uncle Lance, laughing. Why, the old hellion! She must have been feeling in fine fettle. End of chapter 4